As we pray this morning, I'd like, for, I'd like to read to you a few verses from Psalm 111. The works of his hand are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments, his praise, endures forever. Father, we give you praise. And Father, we choose to give you praise forever. And we look forward to the day when we will stand in your presence and be part of the great crowd of people who will be praising you throughout eternity. Lord, you have blessed us. You have helped us. You have drawn us together this morning and, and given us this opportunity to share in worship together with your people. And Father, we pray that you'll be present here with us in this venue this morning, that you'll guide us in our study of your word and the application of its truth. And Father, I pray that uh, we will truly reflect your glory into the lives that are those, those that are near and dear to us, as well as those that are our acquaintances, friends, and co-workers. May they really see that in us, dwells the truth of God. And Lord, that others will be drawn to you because of what they see in us. And we'll thank you for what you do in Christ's name. Amen. I like this one phrase in the passage I read this morning. Holy and awesome is his name. As you probably well know, that in our current day, the word awesome is very overused. Everything is awesome. And I talk at, at the college to the to the students, I said, nothing is awesome but God. <laughs> Everything else may be amazing and, and inspiring and, and good, but not awesome. Only God is truly awesome. <laughs> A lot of things are awful, <laughs> but uh, actually awful, when you go to the root of it, also means the same as awesome, full of awe. <laughs> but we've distorted it like we have bad and good and cold and hot and everything else. <laughs> David is the life that we're focusing on now. And you may remember, as we looked last week, that David and his 600 men had been away in the service of the king of Gath. And while they were away serving the king of Gath, the Amalekites took advantage of the fact that the Negev was largely devoid of troops or, or men for defense, in particular the city of Ziklag. And so they raided the Negev area, and they attacked the town of Ziklag, burning it and pillaging it. This is the Negev, this whole southern region here. Again, reminding you, the Neg word Negev simply means south, the south land here. And Ziklag itself was right up about in here. And many of these other towns, uh, towns that actually aren't even mentioned on there, but we will read about them as we go through the passage, uh, were also raided as well. And what we discover is that as soon as David was able to returned to Ziklag and, and, and find what happened to it, he set out immediately in pursuit of the Amalekites, not of course at first knowing they were Amalekites until they found the Egyptian slave that had been cast out in the desert because of his illness. At that point, it was, he, he discovered that they were Amalekites. And I'm sure when he heard, these guys are Amalekites, <laughs> that David's fire burned a little hotter in his boiler because he had already attacked a band of Amalekites. The Amalekites had been condemned by God to be destroyed. And, and so he moved very quickly. And we remember that he destroyed the Amalekites in their encampment, and he recovered the goods and the people that they had carried off. And 
began to return to Ziklag. On his return to Ziklag, he came to the, to the brook Besor, which is right about in here, where 200 of his men had been left behind because they had been too exhausted by the rapid march they had gone through in coming down from Aphek and then from uh, Ziklag over to the brook that, uh, that they had to be left behind, and the 400 had gone on and completed the, the, the victory. Well, as they came into that camp, you remember last time, we, we, we discovered that as the 400 came into the camp, they looked with disdain at the 200. Bunch of wimps is what they were thinking, of course, about the 200 who had remained behind. And the scripture says of some of the 400 that they were wicked and worthless men. And what they said was, you guys who remained here behind, we'll give you back your wives and your kids and, and some of your stuff, but none of the goodies, none of the loot are we going to share with you because you didn't help us. Of course, remember at the end of class last time, David nixed that whole idea and he proclaimed the law of share and share alike. From that day on, combatants who went forth into battle and who, who were able to capture loot and brought it back were to share it with those who had remained behind at home and who were, in effect, staying by the stuff. And really, it's only fair when you think about that. I don't know how it has been with you, but I know that I can go out and, and do what I need to do if I know that all is well at the home front, right? It's much easier to do your task if you know things are well at home. If things are not well at home, then you can't do your task, you're distracted. And so obviously, share and share alike is the right principle. Well, today, we're going to look at chapter 30, verse 26, to the end of chapter 30 here. 1 Samuel chapter 30, beginning at verse 26. Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Behold a gift for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. To those who were in Bethel, and to those who were in Ramoth of the Negev, and to those who were in Jatir, and to those who were in Arar, and to those who were in Shifmoth, Sifmoth, and those who were in Eshtemoa. And to those who were in Rakal, and those who were in the cities of the Jeremalites, and those who were in the cities of the Kenites, and to those who were in Horma, and to those who were in Bor-Ashan, and to those who were in Atak, and to those who were in Hebron, to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to go. When David arrived back at the city of Ziklag, they had a big task ahead of them. The town had been torched. So obviously they were going to have to do some work here. To, to, to do some reconstruction and to get themselves back into home, as it were, and to get their animals back into the fields. But when David arrived, he could have said, oh no, look at this huge task we got to do. I'm going to moan and groan for the next six weeks. But we find out instead that David demonstrated thankfulness and generosity that were really part of his character, but only part of his character because he had been rubbing shoulders with God. God had blessed him greatly. First, God had delivered him from the pursuit by Saul. This had been going on for a decade, a decade and a half. God had delivered him from that. Secondly, God had delivered him, had extricated him, as it were, from the mess he had gotten himself into in the Phil Philistine country and, and becoming a vassal of the king of Gath and nearly having to go to war against his own people. And then thirdly, 
God had enabled him to recover not a part of what had been stolen, not a few of the people that had been kidnapped, but all of the goods and all of the people to the last, if you will, jot and tittle. Thus, as an expression of thanks to God for what he has done and thanks to the people that had helped him during the time of his flight from Saul, David decides he is going to share from the portion of the plunder that was his. We have to understand, he is not taking the share of the plunder from his men. He's not saying, all right, you guys, you can't have any of the plunder because I'm going to give it all away. That would not have been fair, and he would have totally de demoralized his men. They needed their share, their reward. But as I mentioned to you before, generals of armies and admirals of fleets and captains of ships always got the biggest piece of the pie. And so it would be for David. And so he's going to share the goods that were his, his share of the poor. Sorted that all out. And there was all kinds of other stuff left over. There were the animals that the Amalekites possessed on their own. They probably had stolen them somewhere else before. And then all that they had taken from other cities and towns in the Negev, particularly from the cities of Philistia as well as those from Judea, all of that was in addition to what had been taken from Ziklag. So all of that was the loot. All of that was the prize that they had uh, recovered. Some of it may have been taken from the other towns of the Judean Negev. And I believe David returned all of that to the towns of the Judean Negev that could be identified but in addition, David gave them much more. He gave them of what was rightly his. He gave to each of these towns and each of these groups some of what was his portion as kind of a, a gift, a yapa, uh, you know, a something over and above. What is interesting here is that there, the word which is translated gift in this particular passage more specifically means blessing. Thus, through David, God was blessing his faithful people who had helped David by giving them of the spoils of the enemies of the Lord. Scripture tells us that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and that the meek shall inherit the earth. Every time I read that verse, though, I always remember the little Frank and Ernest joke where, I don't remember which one is which, but one of them said to the pastor, you said the meek shall inherit the earth. Does that mean as is? <laughs> the point here is, of course, how like God to use every opportunity to teach his people a lesson and to reinforce it with, in this case, the gifts, the blessing. The lesson is that if the people of Judah will truly, faithfully obey and serve the Lord, God will bless them. God will gift them. God will supply their needs. God will help them. And he will do it often with the spoils that have been taken from those who have rejected God and have served false. This, of course, is an Old Testament statement of a New Testament principle that we're all familiar with uh, that Jesus spoke in Matthew 6.33, where we're told to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to us. Whatever we need spiritually, emotionally, physically, materially will be added to us if we seek first his kingdom. David's example of generosity demonstrated godly and vital attributes. Let me read a couple of verses from 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 
reading at verse 6. Now I say this, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything. Notice that. God's grace will abound that we will always, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. What is the purpose of the abundance? For every good deed. Is the purpose of the abundance to have a home on the beach and a home in the mountains and a home in the city and a gigantic mobile home and, and, a, and, a, and a yacht and an airplane and a helicopter and vacation in Europe every three weeks? I don't think so. The abundance is not for that. The abundance is for every good deed. As it is written, he, scatters abroad, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness abides forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for, for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And it goes on to say that you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. God has given to us liberally. Sometimes we may not think it's terribly liberal because we're wondering how we're going to meet this bill that has come in that we weren't counting on. But God has blessed us, and God will bless, and God will provide. And so we are to be liberal towards others. Because Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 25, when he went through the whole litany about uh, giving, you know, visiting in prison and, and giving a drink of cold water and giving food and all of these things, and they asked at the end, well, when did we ever do that? And Jesus said, if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. And so we discover that in our generosity, we are actually being generous to God. Ultimately, our generosity is to God. But I think not only is the principle of generosity, which David demonstrates here, important, but there is a second principle that is of equal importance, and that is the principle or the attribute of thankfulness. Thankfulness is to characterize the child of God. It is to be one of our attributes. Not something we have to just, just you know, to, to bring it up and say, oh, well, thanks. But it's just to flow out of us naturally. It's to be an attitude. In fact, thankfulness is commanded and it is exemplified over and over again in Scripture. The so-called attitude of gratitude that you've heard about so much is so important that in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, we read that we are to give thanks in everything because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning each and every individual. Thankfulness is not just to come forth from the mouth of the one who is obviously abundantly rich in, in I'm not just talking about material things, but in any and every way, but from all of us who are the children of God we are to be characterized by a heart of thanksgiving. If we do not exhibit an attitude of thanksgiving, we are not only going to be unhappy, but we are going to be resisting the will of God because it says this is the will of God. 
As Madame Blueberry so profoundly put it, a thankful heart is a happy heart. Those of you who are not familiar with that particular version of VeggieTales probably ought to get it sometime. <laughs> it's one of the few VeggieTales that has a rather profound message to it. It's the one that talks about Stuff Mart. Stuff, 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 stuff. If we are truly thankful people, as God very obviously and clearly commands us to be, then destructive attitudes like bitterness and envy and jealousy and discontent. How many Christian people going, go around discontented? Well, if you have an attitude of thanksgiving, discontent is going to be dispelled. It isn't going to be there. These will not have a fertile ground in our lives if we have the attitude of thanksgiving. Well, all the towns that are mentioned in this passage here at the end of chapter 30 of 1 Samuel were located in the southern part of Judea. And these are towns that in which and around which, down here from Hebron down in the south down here, these are towns in which David hid or near which he hid during the years that he was fleeing from Saul. Saul was pursuing him and he was fleeing. David became very familiar with this part of the Negev. Hebron is the northernmost of the towns. I'm getting blind here. Hebron is the northernmost of the towns that, is that out of focus or what's the problem here? <laughs> He's just getting blind. <laughs> Hebron was the northernmost. The other towns that are all mentioned there, we assume were south. Some of them we know were south. Others were not too sure. They were scattered throughout the, the Negev area there. Of course, some of the towns. Now, some of the ones that are listed in this passage, like, uh, like Sifmoth and Rakhal and Borashan and Athak, cannot be identified. Nobody today knows where those towns were located. And the reason for that probably is that they were, they were small villages and in the subsequent centuries when this part of Israel was subjected to a drought possibly which forced them to pull up stakes and move somewhere else or possibly to war because when you move on in the uh, reading of the Old Testament, you go through 2 Samuel, the Kings and the Chronicles and, and so forth, you, you get into a terrible times of war. And the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are fighting against each other. And then you have the story of the, of, the, uh, of the Assyrians coming and then the Babylonians coming. And in all of that disaster, many towns and villages, even cities were destroyed. And, and sometimes the destruction is so complete that there's no way of, of knowing where exactly these towns were. Today, some of the towns that are mentioned in the scripture, other than big cities like Hebron, no problem locating that, or Bethlehem or Jerusalem because they are still cities. But in some cases, we're able to locate the tell or the rise in the ground where this town or village was because real nearby is an Arab village with a name that is obviously derived from the original name of the town. And that's the way by which modern geographers are able to locate some of the cities mentioned in the Old Testament that are not clearly defined today. By sharing this newly acquired wealth, not only was David exhibiting a spirit of generosity, not only was he expressing thankfulness, a thankful heart, but he was repaying people who had helped him in the years past. People who had helped hide him and supply the needs of his men there in the Negev when he was a refugee. But he was also demonstrating loyalty 
to them which was going to stand him in good stead not too many days hence when he would claim the crown. And they would be supporters because what we're going to discover when we get into 2 Samuel that the northern tribes are going to say no way to David but the, the tribe of Judea will stand rock solid behind him. Well, he was a Judean for one thing but the fact that he had been generous to them and helped them also uh, caused them to commit themselves to his claim. Well, while the events of this chapter 30 were transpiring, nearly a hundred miles to the north, another scenario was being played out which would have very long-lasting ramifications. And these, of course, these were the events that were transpiring right up in here on Mount Gilboa at the edge of the plain of Jezreel. So let's read in chapter 31, beginning at verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. And the battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to the armor-bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on the sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men on that day gather. This passage gives us the account of the tragic finale to the 40-year reign of the first king of Israel. If you study history, spend some time reading through the pages of history, of, of world history, both the eastern and western worlds, one of the themes that you're going to discover is that the first king of a kingdom or the first emperor of an empire usually laid a solid foundation upon which subsequent rulers built and achieved greater glory and greater territorial acquisition. For example, Cyrus, who was a biblical king, the man who founded the Persian Empire, prepared the way through all that he did for the, for the great rule of Darius the Great, the greatest of all the Persians, and a man who was also a biblical emperor. There's Clovis, who founded the Frankish kingdom back in the fifth century in Western Europe, who laid the foundation for the most glorious of all the rulers of the Dark Ages in Europe, a man by the name of Charlemagne. You have Julius Caesar, who in spite of his failures was able to achieve great victories and to lay a foundation upon which a man by the name of Caesar Augustus could build an empire. You have Genghis Khan, who, who launched his warriors in all directions and conquered northern China and laid the foundation for the great Kublai Khan who would establish a glorious empire there in China. And then, of course, you have William the Conqueror who came across the channel and, and conquered England and laid the foundation for Henry II who would establish what is known as the Angevin Empire. And as you go through history, you'll find time after time where this is true. But as you look at the pages of uh, 1st and 2nd Samuel, you do not find this to be true. 
Saul's reign would be followed by the greatest of all the kings of Israel. But Saul had done very little to pave the way for the greatness of David. Israel's situation was actually worse on the day that Saul died on the slopes of Mount Gilboa than it had been on the day when Saul was anointed to be king over Israel. In fact, for several years after the death of Saul, the nation would be divided and there would not be a united kingdom because another man would claim a part of the, of the kingdom and there would be civil war. And portions of the land would be occupied by the Philistines. The Philistines, once they had defeated Saul on Mount Gilboa, who was there to stand between the Philistines and the nation of Israel? Nobody. The king was dead and his army was gone. So the Philistines could have their way. And what they will do is, of course, they will occupy much of the northern part of Israel, south of the Sea of Galilee. Thus, once the rift is healed, which we'll read about in 2 Samuel, David had to start all over again. David had to act as if there had been no kingdom before him and simply go in and lay the foundation all over again and build the kingdom to its greatest extent that it would ever be in the history of the Jewish people, even to this very day. He would do so, of course, with great brilliance. And I think we would go far to try to find any way in which we could credit Saul with any of it. About all Saul did to contribute to David's greatness was to chase him all over the Negev and thus give David a chance to learn humility and dependence upon God. And of course, those are very, very important lessons. But Saul wasn't intentionally teaching them to him. God was teaching them to him. And of course, what this does in turn is to teach us that if we are obedient and faithful to the Lord, even in those times in our lives where it seems like we've been set aside, where we don't understand what's going on, we're, 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 we feel like we're, we're, you know, we're spinning our wheels, we're treading water, we're not going anywhere, we're not accomplishing anything for the Lord. Well, I mean, that's the way David could have felt. He wasn't getting any closer to the kingdom while he was hiding from Saul all the time, wondering when he was going to be captured by his enemy. Sometimes we feel that we're in the midst of a horrible waste of energy and a horrible waste of time. But if we're faithful and obedient to the Lord, God uses that time to prepare us for a service that we have not even yet foreseen, most likely. And so there, are, there is no such thing as wasted time in our lives if we are faithful and obedient. Now, if we're choosing to go out and fritter our time away and to ignore the Lord, that's another thing. But if we're seeking to serve God and it seems like we're, we're in, in a dead situation, God is at work and God is behind the scenes doing something and we're to be continue to be faithful. We're continue to be thankful even in the midst of that. Well, David and his men were far from the scene of the battle on the slopes of Mount Gilboa when Saul's final battle took place. The timing is uncertain. But I believe that David's victory over the Amalekites preceded Saul's defeat on, the Mount, Mount, uh, on Mount Gilboa by about a week or so. We aren't told when the Philistines left Aphek. Remember, David was at Aphek, with all, and the Philistines were gathering at Aphek uh, just east of modern Tel Aviv. There was no Tel Aviv, by the way, in those days. There was no town there. David was sent home by the king of Gath, and, and, and as he went home, do, do we know when after that that the Philistines marched north? We do not know. They probably were still gathering and gathered for a few more days before they 
launched the march north. The march from Afek to, here's Afek right here. The march up the Via Maris and through the, uh, the Carmel Range here and over to Shunem, where they would be, was a distance of about 35 miles. And marching troops, with all the things that the troops had along with them, would have taken two or three days. Because in those days, you didn't have little yellow packets of food to carry in your backpack. It was on the hoof, and you herded it along as you went. That's if you weren't just stealing from the people in the land, which they often did. And so it would take them a, a little while to get there to Shunem from Aphek. But how long were they there at Shunem? How long did it take them to set up camp and to reconnoiter the landscape, to discover Saul's disposition, and to get themselves organized and prepared for battle and, and to array themselves? How long did this take? Days, at least. All we know for sure is that, as we read in 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 4, the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel together and camped in Gilboa. It's interesting how you can find single verses in the scripture which describe things that had to take days of time to happen. It's a good thing, otherwise the Bible would be a very long book. We further read that when Saul observed the Philistine camp up there on Mount Gilboa looking down on, on the uh, Philistine camp that his heart was struck with fear. They're so numerous and they've got chariots and what can I do with my few men up here on the mountain? And we know what he did. He sought the Lord, he said. He wanted God to tell him what to do. And the prophets wouldn't speak. The Urim and Thummim wouldn't speak. God wasn't speaking to Saul because Saul's heart was dead set against God. He only wanted God to conveniently serve him here. He wanted God to be a genie who would pop out of the bottle and, and, and give him victory or tell him what to do. He wasn't interested in serving the Lord God. So God was silent, and so what did he do? He went to the side of the enemy, not the Philistine enemy, but the same power empowering the enemy of Philistines. He went to the medium or the witch at Endor to find out what he ought to do. He wasn't terribly happy, of course, with what he discovered there. The first two verses of the next book, which is 2 Samuel, the first chapter, inform us that... David heard about the death of Saul on the third day after he had arrived back at Ziklag. He had been out in the wilderness of Shur. He had defeated the Amalekites. He had recaptured all of his people and all of his goods. And he had arrived back at Ziklag. And on the third day after that, the word came that Saul had died on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. It would have taken a messenger at least two days by foot to travel from Mount Gilboa to Ziklag. And obviously a messenger wouldn't be going to Ziklag unless he intended to go to Ziklag. Ziklag was no major city. But the messenger purposely went down there because he knew David should be there. And God arranged it so that David was there. It could have been, you know, that the Amalekites would have been further and David had to go further, uh, that the battle would have taken longer, that David would have arrived back at Ziklag too late to hear the messenger. No. God arranged it for David to be back when the messenger came to bring the word. 
It would have taken, of course, David, once he had defeated the Amalekites, I'm sure they took a day to celebrate their victory and to re make reunion with their families and then to rest. These people hadn't rested for so long. And then to herd the people, or herd the um, animals back to uh, Ziklag. I I'm sure that all of that took at least a week because they were over in here somewhere. We don't know how far, but they uh, crossed Besor and I believe most certainly crossed the brook of Egypt or were probably down in here somewhere. Uh, when they overcame the Amalekites and uh, had the victory and, and then began to march back and bring all the animals with them. So as a result, I think that what we gather from this is that probably a week, maybe 10 days before that David had completed the victory that the message finally arrived. This passage helps us to understand that obedience to God can be a life and death matter. David was obedient to God. And as a result, he had a victory, a mighty victory of the Amalekite, and Satan's plot was crushed. Satan, of course, hoped that, that he would damage David, of course, by hitting Ziklag and taking all the people away. And then that maybe David would be sucked into a trap and the Amalekites would destroy him and he would be gone. But none of that happened because God gave the victory to David because David was a faithful man who sought the will of God and was obedient. But Saul is an example of the exact opposite. He was disobedient to God and he led Israel into a great disaster. And Satan won the day. For all practical purposes, Satan won the day. Now, that doesn't mean Satan defeated God, obviously. Satan's victories are always within God's allowance. But Satan won the day. In 1 Chronicles chapter 10, we read these words at verse 13. It gives us sort of a behind-the-scenes understanding of what happened here. 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13. So Saul died for his trespass, which he had committed against the Lord, because the word of the Lord, which he did not keep, and also because he asked counsel of a medium, making inquiry of it, and did not inquire of the Lord. That means genuinely inquire of the Lord. Therefore he killed him. Who? God. And turned the kingdom to David, the son of Jesse. I think it's always important for us to always look behind the scenes to the extent where we are able to, at least. This was a physical battle. It was a physical battle with physical Israelites out there fighting physical Amalekites. Bows and arrows and swords and spears, the whole thing. Man on man, blood was flowing. It was very real to the men of Israel. And yet they had a mighty victory. The same was true for Saul on the top of, not on the top, but on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. It was a real battle with real Philistines against real Israelites, physical, materialistic battle. But motivating these battles were spiritual forces. Satan, however, was thwarted in his efforts to use the Amalekites to destroy David. The scripture says, that the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. God's church will stand. It may be attacked, 
It may be shaked, shaken, but it will still stand. It reminds me of the story of the great city of Constantinople, although obviously uh, Constantinople is not a perfect example of this, but the city of Constantinople, which is today known as Istanbul, was, was built with a powerful walls, the most powerful walls ever given to a city in the history of the human race. And the land walls that separated Constantinople from, from the rest of, of Europe, and the other three sides of the city were surrounded by water and, and walls, but those big land walls were so powerful that they stood for 1,000 years against all assaults. And there were some major assaults by huge groups of people with all kinds of equipment. They could not get through those walls. Those walls were one day finally breached because the Turks had cannon. The walls weren't built, of course, to deal with cannon. But uh, I mean, it's an imperfect example, but, it, but it's that kind of an idea. All these assaults washed against the walls of the city and were driven away. And so it is. The church is rocked by attacks, but the church will stand because it's on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. So what does he do? What does Satan do? He's not able to destroy David, so he goes up and uh, takes part, I believe, in the battle on Mount Gilboa. Takes out his frustration there because God lifts his hand of protection from off of Israel and off of King Saul. In fact, the scripture, as we just read, said that God killed Saul while well, he used Satan as the inspiration and the Philistines as the instruments. Saul himself in the final analysis. And Israel faced destruction. Well, we all know this passage very well, but I think it behooves us to read it frequently from 1 Peter chapter 5. Because I think sometimes we get bogged down in thinking that everything is just as it appears. This is just a struggle. I'm just having a personality conflict with so-and-so. Well, I think you'll find there's a whole lot more to it than that. In 1 Peter chapter 5, reading at verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. You know, sometimes we have a problem with horn blowing. We go around blowing our own horn. I think it's far better we let God blow it for us. Casting your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Be sober of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I think it's important for us to know that there is no physical conflict that does not have its spiritual element. And generally speaking, the primary issue is the spiritual issue. The physical is just a manifestation of what's going on, the wars in the heavenlies, as it were. The struggle for the souls of men and women that is going on in this world is the unseen struggle. The seen struggle is just a symptom of it. So it would be for David against the Amalekites in the wilderness of Shur, and so it would be for Saul on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. The results would be different, but the forces at work were the same. 
In the one case, the difference, and, and the difference was, in the one case, David was a godly man who sought God with all his heart. In the other instance, Saul was an evil man who did not seek God and sought his own way. The contrast cannot be more obvious, I think, anywhere in the pages of Scripture. Through his humility and obedience, David had resisted Satan. He didn't know that, of course. David didn't have this passage in 1 Peter. David didn't have the Ephesians passage, which tells us to put on the whole army of, armor of God. But he understood the principles. And thus God gave him the victory. But Saul's arrogance and disobedience were compounded by his seeking help from the enemy at the, uh, the medium of Endor. I mean, this first it says, of course, in, in the uh, Corinthi uh, Chronicles passage, that it was because... Saul had turned away from God, but then it said, in addition to that, he had sought the enemy himself. Thus Saul was devoured, and sadly, along with him, were devoured his three sons. He had four, actually, but three of his sons, including the godly Jonathan, as well as his men and his army there on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. The disobedience of one can horribly impact many. We might say, but if Jonathan is godly, why did he fall on the slopes of Gilboa? Were all of the men of, De of Saul's army evil men? I don't think so. We can't always explain why what some people call good things, bad things happen to good people. But uh, God in his sovereignty chose this way. And evil does impact us as believers. We are impacted by evil. There were probably born-again people who died in the collapse of the World Trade Centers. Were they bad that day, so God let them get killed? I don't think so. Um, because obviously all of us go on to a far better situation. But most of us aren't real too anxious to hurry that up. And um, we just as soon stay here as long as God will allow us to. As long as we have a role to play a ministry to perform, and I think most of us do. And so we need to be faithful in that. Well, the last part of this chapter uh, describes the battle, or the climax and everything, and so I won't go into that today. We don't have time. So next week we'll look at the last few verses of chapter 31.